Let me ask you, where does victory come from? Where does victory come from? As I'm sure you're aware, uh, we as Christians are in a spiritual battle. Uh, there is a war going on. We are fighting against temptation, trying to resist uh, the devil's schemes. We are fighting against Satan's attacks. Uh, there is a war going on. Uh, I had a, a quick look at some of the sermons that you've had preached recently, uh, and I noticed that Norman has been going through the, the armour of God. Uh, equip yourselves with the full armour of God that you may stand against the devil's schemes. I noticed that back in March, Tim Wood preached on spiritual warfare, and then tonight you've got the next instalment uh, on the temptations of Christ from David. I'd already planned to preach this sermon for you this morning, but when I saw that, I'd wondered whether there was a theme that the Lord was drawing together. Because we are in a battle, aren't we? Sometimes that battle can go a little bit quiet, and we can forget that there's a spiritual war going on, and we can let our guard down. Those are the most dangerous times, aren't they? Where we drop our guard. At other times... The fighting can feel so fierce, uh, the, the battle can feel so hot that we feel overwhelmed and we're at our wit's end. Well, this morning we've read about a battle. In verse 8 of that passage that we read, Amalek came and fought. Now, uh, that's quite a short summary of what actually happened. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, Moses gives a little bit more detail of exactly what happens. Deuteronomy 25 verses 17 and 18 says, Remember what Amalek did to you uh, on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Essentially, this is an ambush. The people of Israel, they've just left Egypt, they're walking through the desert, they are hungry, they are thirsty, they've only just found some more water, and Amalek attack when they're at their weakest moment. This is completely unfair, it's completely uncalled for, and it is unprovoked. Amalek attack. The Israelites have found themselves in a battle. Now, this morning, we're going to look at this battle scene in four points. They are going to be the power of God, the weakness of men, the throne of the Lord, and the man on the hill. We'll go through those as we get through the sermon. Just to replay the events, though, of what we read. The Amalekites have attacked the Israelites. Moses tells Joshua, his young assistant, to form an army to fight back, to resist. Now, meanwhile, Moses, Aaron and Hur, they head up to the top of the hill with the rod of God in hand. And as the battle rages on down below, Moses is up there on the hill. When he lifts up his hands, Israel succeed. When he drops his hands, Amalek succeeds. Now, Moses is getting pretty tired. 
So eventually Aaron and her, they, they find a big stone for Moses to sit down on. And they stand either side of him, holding up his hands uh, so that the Israelites win. It's a simple story. Uh, as I was preparing this and read through the commentaries, you discover that it's a simple story, but people have got plenty of different ideas of what it actually means. I'm going to try and keep it simple for this morning. So let's think firstly, the power of God. Let's read again verses 9 to 11. Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hands. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. When he let, his hand, when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. So Moses, Moses is the leader of the Israelite nation, isn't he? He's the one who led the people as they came out of Egypt. He's the one who stood at the edge of the Red Sea as it opened up for the people to walk through. Just a few verses earlier, he's the man who struck the rock so that the water flowed out for the people to drink. Moses is the human leader of this nation. So what on earth is he doing in these verses? What was he playing at? Surely the Israelites need their leader out on the battlefield. Surely they need Moses leading the charge against the Amalekites. And instead, Moses delegates that to young Joshua. This is the first time in the Bible that we meet Joshua He's completely inexperienced. He's never done this before. And so he gives it to Joshua. And meanwhile, Moses scurries off to the top of the hill to a place of safety. (laughs) What are you doing, Moses? Well, what is he doing? It's at this point that we've got this strange account of Moses lifting his hands, dropping his hands, lifting his hands. What's going on? This is where all of the different ideas of what's happening come into play. Uh, Alec Matea, one of the commentators, he says, well, clearly Moses is lifting his hands in the same way that people lift their hands all over the Old Testament. He's lifting his hands to pray. Moses is praying. And so, for instance, Psalm 28, verse 2 Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Lifting of hands, prayer. Or or Psalm 141, verse 2. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. There you go. Moses is praying. Not so fast. John Currid. Uh, another commentator, he, well, he asks a very simple question. Where does it say that in the passage? Where did it say that Moses was praying? I, I didn't read that. I don't remember reading that. Do you, do you remember saying, saying that he was praying? And John Curry is very quick to point out, what does Moses have in his hands? Did you spot that? What does Moses have in his hands? In verse 9, We're told 
Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hands. I wonder if you know what that rod represents. It's not just a walking stick. Moses is quite an old man, but that's not why he's got a staff or a rod in his hand. No, it's with this staff that Moses struck the Nile and it turned to blood. It is with this staff that Moses struck the dust of Egypt and it turned to gnats. It's with this staff that he stretched out the staff toward heaven and he called down thunder and hail on Egypt. It's with this staff that he stretched it out over the land and he invited in the plagues of locusts. It's with this staff that he lifted it up over the Red Sea and it split in two and then closed again onto the Egyptians. It's with this staff that he struck a rock and water came flowing out. This staff that Moses has in his hands, it's a symbol, isn't it? Of the power and the judgment of God. So maybe this act of raising his hands is not so much to pray, but more, he's holding up the staff to judge the Amalekites in the same way he lifted it up to judge the Egyptians. Is Moses lifting his hands to pray or is he lifting the staff to judge? I'll leave that to you. You can decide. But either way, the point is really clear, isn't it? Whether he's praying or whether he's holding up the stuff, the point is that the power comes from the Lord. That's why Moses is up on the hill rather than out on the battlefield. Because Moses knows that if the Israelites are going to win, they don't need him leading the charge instead they need God to fight on their behalf where does the victory come from it comes from the Lord let's see secondly the weakness of men let's read again verses 11 and 12 so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed when he let down his hand Amalek prevailed But Moses' hands became heavy. And so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Moses' hands go up. Israel win. Moses' hands go down. Amalek win. That tells you something, doesn't it? It tells you something about the strength of Israel's army, or should we say, the lack of it. Moses has told Joshua to gather this group of men to fight back against the Amalekites. But unless Moses is up there with his hands in the air, they lose. Israel would have lost if God had not intervened. Their army... It's not fit enough. It's not strong enough. They're too weak. They're too inexperienced. They don't have enough training. They don't have the right sorts of armour. They don't have the right weapons. This army is made up 
of weak men. Does that sound familiar to you at all? People who, in their own strength, are too weak? People who are too inexperienced? People who don't have enough training, don't have enough resources? Sounds like the church to me. The church are just like the armies of Joshua. We're not strong enough, are we? We aren't skilled enough. If it was all down to us and our abilities, well, we're finished. We're done for. We may as well pack up and go home this morning if it's all resting on our shoulders because we are not up to the task. In our fight against temptation, in the battle to win souls, in resisting the devil's attempts to disrupt us and divide us, Humanly speaking, we cannot win. I can't emphasise this enough. Because we are so easily tempted, aren't we? To trust in ourselves. Or to trust in some other person. I can do this. I can manage. No, you can't. J.C. Ryle once famously said, The best of men are men at best. Even the best, even the brightest, even the strongest, the big names, the leading lights, even they are just weak people. Even Moses, even he was weak. In verse 12, we read that, don't we? Moses' hands became heavy. Come on, Moses. All you've got to do is hold your hands in the air. You can't even do that. Let's not be too hard on Moses. He was in his 80s by this point. It's understandable that he'd get tired. But that's the point. Even Moses, the one who'd confronted Pharaoh, the one who'd brought down the plagues on Egypt, the one who'd opened the Red Sea, the one who'd led the people through, even he grew tired. And actually thinking about it, it wasn't Moses who did any of those things, was it? It was God that confronted Pharaoh. It was God who sent down the plagues. It was God who led the people out of Egypt. It was God who opened the sea. Moses has always, only ever been a weak, frail man who couldn't even keep his hands in the air. That's something we see, isn't it? Time and time And time again, all the way through the Bible, Gideon, the scaredy cat hiding in a wine press, and yet God used him to defeat the Midianites and, interestingly, the Amalekites. David, the the shepherd boy whose dad didn't even bother to bring him in from the field when Samuel came to visit, and yet he was God's chosen king that he used in incredible ways. Mary, the girl from Nazareth who had nothing going for her, and yet God chose her to give birth to the Lord Jesus. The disciples, fishermen, tax collectors, they they grew weary, just like Moses. They fell asleep when they were supposed to be praying. And yet God used them 
to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Don't trust in yourselves. Don't trust in your own abilities. Don't trust in a new pastor, whoever that may be. Trust in the Lord. We are all weak. He alone is strong. This will have a big impact, won't it, on the way that we actually live our lives. I said a moment ago that we don't really know whether Moses was praying or not when he was lifting his hands on the hill. But whether or not he was praying... If we come to terms with these truths, if we realise that we are weak, God is strong, that forces us to pray, regardless of whether Moses was. How can we not pray? When we realise our weakness, when we realise God's strength, we can do nothing except pray. We are weak. He is strong. So pray. Pray alone every day. Pray with your family. Come along and pray in the midweek meetings. Trusting ourselves will leave us thinking, it's all right, God, we can do this. We don't need to pray. Trusting God will make us realise we can't live without prayer. Let's think thirdly. I've called this, this point the throne of the Lord, but we could call it the enemies of God. The enemies of God. Let's read again verses 14 to 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn the war, uh, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. What does God have against Amalek? Why is God so determined to wipe these people off the face of the earth? Well, for one thing, the Amalekites are descendants of Esau. If you remember the story in Genesis of Jacob and Esau, uh, Esau was the oldest brother. He was the, the one who was in line to inherit God's blessing. He had the birthright, and yet he didn't care. He, he didn't care about God's blessing. He didn't care about God. He, he swapped the blessing of God in exchange for a bowl of stew. Essentially, he was spitting in God's face. Don't care about you, God. I just want some food. And these Amalekites, they're from the same family. They, they, they're just like father, like son. They don't care about God. They don't care about God's law. They don't care about God's people. They just hate God. And that's why they attack. Now, I don't know if your Bible has footnotes like mine does, but in verse 16, there's there's a footnote in my Bible that says, literally, this could read, a hand is upon the throne of the Lord. Other translations actually put that in the main text, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. That phrase perfectly describes what the Amalekites are doing. They are putting their hands on God's throne. That they are grasping for power. 
that they're trying to snatch away God's throne. The verse could even read, a hand is against the throne of the Lord. These people, they are opposing God. They're trying to make themselves God. They're trying to get rid of the Israelites, get rid of God. Moses, he's got his hands in the air, raised to worship, to pray, to rely on God. Whereas these Amalekites, they've got their hands raised against God's people to attack, to oppose. And so the Lord will have war with Amalek. You can't fight against God. You can't oppose God and try and snatch God's throne away and expect to just get away with it. You can't fight God and just expect him to be fine with it. The Amalekites, they're a really serious warning to us today, aren't they? Those who oppose God will find themselves blotted out. That's exactly what's going on in our world, isn't it? The main attitude of our culture is get rid of God. But we don't care what the Bible says. Who cares what God thinks? I'm in charge. I'll decide how to live my life. Thank you very much. This is the essence of sin. To fight against God, grasping for God's throne. This is exactly what Adam and Eve were doing in the garden. They were grasping for power, snatching God's throne away. But when people do that, when people fight against God, they will find that they are blotted out. They might make it through this life, fine. They might make it to the end of their life, uh, okay, without a scratch on them. But when they get to the end, they'll have to meet this God that they've been fighting against. They'll have to meet this judge that they've been opposing all of their lives. (coughs) And when people get to the end of their lives, they may have made it through this life, fine. But at the end... They will find themselves under God's wrath and his judgment. Can I ask you this morning, just to examine your own heart for a minute. Is there any sense in which you are like these Amalekites? Is there any way in which you, like them, are resisting God? trying to rule your own life, rejecting the Lord as your king. Because please listen and pay careful attention to the example of the Amalekites. You cannot fight against God and win. You just can't. The Lord is God and we cannot put our grubby hands on his throne. Instead, we must submit to him as our king. I think fourthly and finally, the man on the hill. Let's read again verse 10. So Joshua did, as Moses said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Three men on a hill. And they are going up in between the people in the valley 
and God in heaven. And it's because of these three men on a hill that the Israelites are victorious. It's because of what they do, because of them interceding for the people that that the Israelites win. Who are these three men on the hill? We've got Moses. We're told in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, that Moses is a prophet. He's someone who brings God's word, announces, declares the word of God to the people. Moses, a prophet. And then we've got Aaron. Aaron, in Exodus 28, he's established as the high priest for the nation, the one who presents the sacrifices and the offerings to God. And then we've got her. Who's he? Well, we don't really know much about her, but in Exodus 31, verse 2, we're told that her is from the family line of Judah. Judah is the line of the kings. And so up on this hill, we've got a prophet, a priest, and potentially a king. And it's because of these three men on a hill that God gives the victory to the people. Some of you have already clicked where I'm going. I can see it in your faces. But let me put it to you a different way. Here is Moses. He's carrying up this wooden staff, the tool of God's judgment. And there he is. He's carrying it up a hill. And then in verse 12, we read that he's tired. So tired that he can't even stand. And so he has two other people. One on his right, the other on his left. Do you see where I'm going with this? Fast forward to the New Testament and we read about another man. Jesus of Nazareth. He's carrying, not not a staff in his hand, but instead he's carrying his cross. This is the tool of God's judgment and wrath. And he's carrying it up a hill. But as he's carrying it up the hill, he's too tired even to stand up. And so that's why they call Simon of Cyrene to help Jesus carry his cross up the hill. And there he is on the top of this hill with two others. One on his right, the other on his left. Who is this man on the hill? Well, he's Jesus, isn't he? Jesus, the true prophet. The one who spoke with the authority of God. But who's this man? He's also Jesus, the great high priest. The one who presents a once and for all sacrifice for sins. But who is he? He's he's Jesus. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the true heir to heaven's throne. In Exodus 17, we read that the victory comes from God. The enemy is defeated, but the victory comes to the people through a prophet, priest and king up on the top of a hill. Going between God and the people. And at Calvary... The victory comes from God, 
the great enemies of sin and death and hell, they are defeated. But it comes to us all thanks to Jesus Christ, our prophet, priest and king, the one who was crucified at Calvary as a mediator to go between us and God. It might be that this morning you're here and and you're an Amalekite. You're resisting God. You're fighting against him. The lesson for you is quite simple. You can't win. You will only face God's wrath. Repent. Turn to the Lord. And trust in him. But for those of us who are God's people. For those of us who know and and love the Lord. As we look back at this passage in Exodus 17. We stand in the shoes of the Israelites. Don't we? We might feel just as weak as they were. We might feel completely ill-equipped like they were. We, we might feel completely out of our depth. But for us this morning, all we need to do is look up to the top of that hill and see on Calvary our prophet, priest and king. Where does the victory come from? We find the answer, don't we, in Exodus 17? Victory comes from God through a prophet, priest and king. Three men on a hill. But the answer is still the same today. Where does victory come from? Victory against Satan. Victory against sin. Victory over temptation. Where where does it come from? It comes from God. And it comes through a prophet, priest and king. That one man on a hill. That's why I began our service with those words from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray to him now. Heavenly Father, we confess our weakness and our frailty to you. Forgive us, Lord, that so often we we think we're strong. Forgive us that we think we can make it on our own. Lord, we know we can't. Help us to remember and to humbly acknowledge our frailties. Lord, we thank you that you say that it is through our weakness that your strength is made perfect. Lord, we thank you that you don't ask us to be strong. Thank you that you don't ask us to to have all of the answers in ourselves. Lord, we thank you that instead you've given us the victory. Thank you that you have won the, the war on our behalf. And so, Lord, help us each and every day Not to trust in ourselves, not to rely on our leaders, but Lord, help us always and only to trust in you, our 
almighty God, our Lord, our King, the one who has sent your Son in order to give us the victory. We bring all of these things to you in our Saviour.